In the tech industry, we've all grown to fear lock-in. Lock-in is a situation in which you have no choice but to pay a certain provider for some aspect of your computer services. Since computers are so fundamental to our lives, we sometimes have no choice but to pay the provider of that lock-in for their service. Think of a few service providers in your life who have no serious competition. What's your relationship to that service provider? Do you feel like you're paying too much money? Do you wish that you could switch? This is how many people feel about their internet service provider. An internet service provider is the company that provides you with the last mile of physical infrastructure that connects you to the rest of the internet. Different forms of ISP include cable ISPs, satellite ISPs, fiber ISPs, and copper DSL ISPs. The medium of delivery varies, but the functionality is the same. The company is crucial to your internet access. In many geographic locations, there are very restricted options for which ISP you could use. Why is that? Many people assume that there's some physical or regulatory barrier to starting an ISP. In fact, there are fewer barriers than you might think. Adam Montgomery is a co-founder of Necto, a company that provides an ISP starter kit. If you want to start your own ISP in an apartment building or in your neighborhood or wherever you are, the Necto ISP starter kit can help you get off the ground. That might sound like a crazy idea, but in this episode, Adam explains why it is not so crazy, why the technology around ISPs is more broadly accessible than many people believe. As always, if you have feedback or suggestions on the show or ideas for show topics or really anything you want to talk about, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I'd love to hear from you. Adam Montgomery is the founder of Necto. Adam, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. What is an ISP? Oh, so an internet service provider, ISP, is a company that sells, you know, as uh, internet service to either you know residential or business clients. So mainly, kind of what they're responsible for is what's called the last mile delivery. So that's getting basically to the home or you know physical address of their subscribers. Going out from there, you know, the internet sort of you know, takes on more a, a life of its own, but sort of what they're responsible for is going from that home to kind of like a, a transit provider out to the wider internet and providing, you know, connectivity services to those subscribers. What's required to build one of those ISPs? So really what you need is some expertise basically on on networking and some way to some sort of technology or mechanism to, to deliver the internet, as well as, you know, the capabilities to support those subscribers and, you know, keep everybody happy, keep everybody billing and all those, those aspects, marketing, customer acquisition and retention. Yeah, as far as technically what they need, they really need a, you know, the ability to provide internet to, to those customers. So pretty common ways in the past have done that, like starting with, you know, dial-up providers, DSL, fiber, fixed wireless is what we use here in San Francisco. There's kind of a few mechanisms there to do that last mile delivery and then being able to kind of, you know, keep the trains running and keep the, you know, the pipes flowing and uh, keep the, you know, the internet and connectivity uh, working for your customers. You've referred to that term last mile as being something that is descriptor for the ISPs. What other parts of the life cycle in traveling and a message on the internet, a packet on the internet, traveling from one person to another, 
where does it cross over into an ISP and where where is it crossing over from? Can you give us more of a lay of the land of how a packet travels through the internet? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So if you start sort of like, you know, at your device, at your computer, you're transmitting usually over like a Wi-Fi network possibly in your home. And then sort of where, you know, consider the the point where it transfers from your in-home network to your your ISP. So that is uh, that would be like at the modem usually is a modem or, or router kind of combination is where that that point where it crosses over. And basically, yeah, what you're sending is um, is yeah packets of information. And that transits, you know, over whatever the, the physical medium that the your provider has set up through their switching gear, through their routing gear, and then out sort of to the, the wider internet. And really how you think of the, the internet is really it's just it's you know, it's just a collection of computers and you know switching gear owned by different people. So um, what you do when you know in the wider internet it's called like a, a autonomous system is like sort of a, a set of, of switching gear that belongs to an individual company. And then what you do is that when that packet is going out to go reach whatever that final destination, like say you're, you know, you're trying to reach, you know, you're in the U.S. and you're trying to reach like somewhere in Korea, you go across those various autonomous systems and kind of you can sort of think of each of those those groups of computers as sort of its own ISP because it's sort of it takes similarly, it takes traffic in from its customers and it sends it out to a destination. So sort of it's almost like a, you know, like a like a sequential, you know, ISP kind of for, you know, nested relationship there between all these different companies. And then it just follows kind of, you know, usually a similar path on the way back. So you're, you're really kind of transiting across a bunch of you sort of have one ISP, but your ISP might have an ISP and similarly like that. So that's that's how the, the Internet sort of, you know, how you get connected to, you know, all these different computers. It's like not like one ISP has to negotiate with, you know, somebody in like like a transcontinental cable or anything like that. You sort of have one person that you deal with and then that person deals with one or multiple people to provide Internet service going out that way. There are cable ISPs. There are fiber ISPs. There are copper DSL ISPs. There's satellite ISPs. How do these different ISP delivery methods differ? Yeah, so a lot of them, those and the ones you mentioned, they're they're sort of the the physical medium that you use for that last mile. So with a satellite, you know, you're you're transmitting you're transmitting wireless signal over you know like a, like usually the K bands to provide that last mile connectivity. And the big difference between those different ones is you know throughput and latency usually. So like with a satellite, you know, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to a geostationary orbit satellite, you know, you're, you're actually running into issues with the speed of light is how, how much kind of your latency is going to be bounded by. If you're going over like a, you know, cable or fiber, like fiber would have a lot more capacity for, you know, a lot more throughput capacity. So depending on what that, what that medium is, uh, is really kind of determining those two aspects of your experience, as well as, you know, you know, reliability based on, you know, how that physical medium is set up. I know the term throughput. What is thoroughput? Oh, throughput. Sorry. Yeah. yeah maybe that's a, a Canadian thing. <laughs> you meant throughput. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. You could coin that term if you want at some point. Is there a best delivery method among these different ISP hardware mediums? If you look at it on a cost-benefit basis now, it's it's a trade-off every time. If you're somewhere and you just have no other way to reach you know, another connectivity point, like satellite's your best option. Between, like, say, if you're, you know, if cost was constant, fiber would be the gold standard. But, um, you know, cost cost isn't constant and you know, fiber's, you know, very expensive to run. So, you know, it's really always just a trade-off between those factors and, you know, looking at the specifics of the, the deployment on whether which one is best. That's usually how you have, you have to always look at it on a cost basis because... 
that's you know at, at the end of the day the you know there's a lifetime of the equipment and there's payback periods if you had unlimited money and you can make different decisions but you know given the realities you, you have to look at that trade-off americans have very little choice over which isp they can use why is that yeah that's that's interesting and it is there's a large amount of the u.s that is not really in a competitive marketplace and I think those are sort of vestiges of the cost of what it used to cost to, to lay this infrastructure. So if you're looking at having to, you know, provide service to, you know, every single home in America, it's, it's an extremely costly endeavor. And, you know, they used to not have the technology that we have now to be able to sort of provide, you know, service to an area at a really, really low cost. So if you're having to put in, you know, cables into the ground, that's that's really expensive. And, you know, if you have a you can get a lot of basically return to that scale if you can uh, efficiency of scale rather if if you are like a big company and you're putting these these cables in the ground along with you know the the kind of more you know government funded monopoly situation that you know like AT&T uh, found itself benefiting from so uh, that's yeah that's kind of why that there there hasn't been that that huge shift and what we're seeing now and the reason that we got started is that the technology has, has really caught up and been able to provide that really cost-effective service and enabling just anybody to be able to start their own ISP. So what we see now is the issue is no longer, you know, am I a big enough company to afford a billion-dollar outlay? It's do I have the expertise, do I have the capability to service these customers? And we found really now that the, the thing that's really constraining the market is the uh, network engineering and, you know, the technical aspects of how to run these businesses. Like, you know, um, there's probably a lot of people that'll be listening that, that didn't really know you could start an ISP. I, I didn't know that originally. And the fact that you can is something that you can and that you, you if you have the, the support to be able to do the technical sides of things, that you can make a good amount of money at it is, is something that has, has really only been enabled recently um, with the, the kind of change in the technology. So what we do is try to bring and bridge that that technical gap and say like, okay, we can wrap this all into one thing. And you can, you know, if you can talk to customers, if you can do the sales, if you can handle the, the business parts of running a business, then we can handle the internet part of it. We will certainly get into that a little more on the state of affairs today. Comcast is often referred to as a monopoly. I certainly feel like my relationship with Comcast is antagonistic, whereas most of the service providers that I use in my life, I feel like I have a choice, and therefore there is not that antagonistic relationship. So I do feel like the service providers where I have an antagonistic relationship, there there seems to be a high correlation with ones that are sometimes referred to as monopolistic. Is Comcast a monopoly? I mean, I'm certainly in certain areas, I would say it'd be pretty close. Um, probably in a lot, it's, it's you know, monopoly, duopoly. Yeah, there, there's just a lot of areas where, where there's just not a lot of choice. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, w- with the lack of competition, you know, you, you get a lot of some of the issues that we see now where it's just, you know, there's not that same focus. There's not the same drive to the customer experience part of it. So, uh, yeah, whether, whether it would meet the technical definition or not, it, it certainly puts people in a, in a position where they feel like they're, you know, they're kind of left without options. I think monopoly is not necessarily a problematic situation to be in from a legal standpoint. Antitrust is where it gets worrisome. Antitrust is where a monopoly will undermine the competition. Does Comcast or any other large ISP engage in antitrust? 
to call it antitrust, uh, I, I don't know, but uh, there's certainly you certainly hear stories about you know if they if you're laying infrastructure and you're trying to get on power poles and you know you have if you you have Comcast already on the pole, there's probably certain you know competitive measures that they would take. I, you know whether it's antitrust or not, that's you know that's out of my wheelhouse. But um, you know it, it's certainly there's certainly issues with their scale that make it hard to compete with them in certain areas. In San Francisco, there are more ISPs than most places in the U.S. Why is that? Yeah, I think it's a uh, it's a lot of people that have. Um, so some of the ISPs that we have out here, like um, you know, there's Monkey Brains, WebPass. I think it's it, it. You know, it would just have to be sort of the 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 culture of the area. I guess that you know some people that like you know have this kind of like you know the hacker mentality of like you know hey like, we can you know hey we can do this like there's not a reason that we have to be like you know beholden to these big guys. Uh, I think that you know it's just it's it's got to be a function of the culture and the the fact that you know there's a lot of people out here with you know really high you know requirements for internet access um, you know a lot of the software engineering community out here so uh, I think the combination of the two has made it um, you know a really good area to, to have a, to start an ISP. Now I have been following Google Fiber out of the corner of my eye, but I don't have a great understanding for what challenges they ran into what the state of Google Fiber is today. Can you tell me about Google Fiber? And I, the reason I bring this up is just because I think it's an interesting data point along the historical timeline of how hard is it to build an ISP and what do you need to build an ISP? Yeah, so a lot of the, the things that we've heard about from Google Fiber is really just running into cost issues. Like if you're, you know, you're rolling out, you know, fiber across, across the, you know, the U.S. and large amount of these cities, uh, you know, it, it's pretty expensive. And, you know, being able to do it cost effectively and, and managing that, that construction process and that build out process is, is certainly a, um, you know, certainly a, a skill set. So kind of the issues that we've heard is, is mainly related to costs that has just been, it's been hard to get, you know, fiber in the ground cost effectively and get these, these spun up. So that's, that's sort of a, you know, that's sort of a risk you take if you're, if you're going to want to like shell out that much money and, and sort of lay, you know, lay fiber across that much area. So that's, that's what we've, we've heard. And we've heard that there's, there's, you know, it's, it certainly seems like it's, it's slowing down the, the, um, the deployment speed for Google fiber. So Google fiber, a potential provider of Fiber, how does that differ from an ISP? So Google Fiber in those cases would be the ISP. Um, so there's there's sort of two, you know, you the person that owns the fiber and the person that provides the internet service over the fiber doesn't necessarily have to be the same person. Um, here in San Francisco, there's a kind of initiative uh, they're looking at right now for uh, what's called an open access uh, fiber network. So what that is is where the city takes on the the capital expenditure of laying all the fiber. And in San Francisco, they're looking to try to get fiber to every home um, so they take on that that laying that fiber, and then somebody else, another like a private company, then takes on the responsibility for what's called like lighting that fiber and providing service across that you know the glass that's basically in the ground. So um, in this case, like in that case with Google, you know they own the fiber and light the fiber in the the open access networks uh, that we that you know they're looking at having here on here in San Francisco. Those could sep- those could possibly be separate companies. If Google Fiber had a hard time, but you're making the argument that an ISP is easier to set up today than it was in the past. What's the gap there that I I think listeners may sense? You know, there's there's obviously something something there to bridge the gap, right? Yeah, definitely. And that that's a more cost-effective way of, of getting the internet service. 
So, you know, if you're if you're looking to put like, you know, what we do is we're, we're not advocating our operators to go in and put fiber in the ground day one. Um, much the same way that you have a lot of independent ISPs here that, you know, they 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 didn't they didn't start with fiber. And if you want to try and, you know, starting with fiber is a pretty, you know, a high risk move. And it's not really necessary in a lot of areas. Like a lot of the areas that we see now, there's there's plenty of places you can serve Internet that it wouldn't make it wouldn't be very cost effective for another company to try and lay fiber and provide service that way. So what we can do is we can provide service over fixed wireless equipment, and then that can provide you can provide up to gigabit speeds using a much much less effective or much much less um, costly deployment mechanism. So so that's really the piece is that the technology around that side on the more cost effective side has gotten so much better. Like you know fiber technology is obviously like it's it's improving to like what they're used to light it, but the stuff that you can use to be able to provide these residential like residential and business services. The, the equipment there has gotten a lot easier to a lot easier to afford and to operate. Fixed wireless. What does that mean? That means that you're providing service over a like two you know fixed residences, homes, and businesses over over wireless like like RF basically. So what we do is we have distribution towers that we basically attach antennas to. And then we go to individual uh, customer homes and we set up a, a small antenna on their roof. And then the communication between the tower site and that antenna is what provides them the internet service. Who owns those distribution towers? We lease them and we own the, we own the equipment on them and then lease the towers. But if you own the building, obviously you can, you can you know, attach towers on yours. And in a lot of cases with our operators there, they own buildings and then they attach the distribution gear to that building. Okay, so there's a distribution tower. Is, is that like a tower where there's internet cable coming up through the tower and you have to attach some distribution? I'm sorry, this is not hardware engineering daily. It's why I know almost nothing about this domain. But do you have to just put the the distribution device up on top of the tower and that's uh you know piping up something that the the tower itself has dominion over yeah yeah so it's uh yeah it's interesting so there's, yeah there's two ways you can get into a tower you can actually reach that you can actually yeah the tower needs to have you know internet connectivity so there's two ways you can get into the tower is um there's one is you can you could pull like fiber directly into the into the building that has the the tower site on it and and pow- and you know provide it with data that way or you can actually wirelessly uh beam connectivity to that tower so you can create like basically a network of these of these tower sites wirelessly and, and on some ones you can you can like pull fiber directly into and then and then power it that way so yeah it's kind of like yeah it's it is sort of like a you know a hardware and infrastructure thing but you know it's kind of the end of the day you can almost think of it like water you know it's you know they're they're sort of pipes and you need to be able to kind of connect the pipes together and you know they have to have a water source at the end of the day so that's uh that's there's a couple a couple ways that you can provide that water source so my apartment building when i moved in i think i was told that comcast was my only option even though i live in San Francisco, like you, uh, why is that? In the building, so there, there's there's two potential things there. One is that if if you're an apartment building, then just that one that one provider is the only one that that has like kind of pulled service into the building by choice. Uh, in San Francisco, that's usually usually kind of rare. And a lot of cases, you know, the the building operators there's there's certain rules governing like whether you know how building operators have to basically allow you know other providers to provide service 
but there's also a lot of like gray area and wiggle room around there where a you know building owners can can make it difficult for other providers to get into their building so usually one of those two in san francisco given how competitive it is most buildings here would have at least at least one provider um and or and more providers looking to get in so you know there could be could be issues with you know the building potentially not wanting other ones in there it's it's not uncommon for certain providers to you know pay money to building owners either under you know an access agreement or like a revenue share type thing so um, there's there's a few things there that can that can prevent you from getting you know competitive service even in a competitive market we'll get into necto eventually i want to give people even more of a thrust for why this might be relevant to them Net neutrality, that's something that I know is important to you. What is the connection between the number of ISPs and net neutrality? So, yeah, with the net neutrality, I think there's this kind of two ways that you can kind of get at the, the underlying you know, goal of net neutrality, which is just like, you know, we, we want to be able to not be throttled, you know, sort of either arbitrarily or, or for profit by our Internet service providers. So there's, you know, there's kind of two ways to accomplish that one is, you know, the regulation that they had with net neutrality, kind of bringing ISPs under uh, Title II that, you know, has now been um, kind of rolled back. And uh, the other way is, you know, just by providing you choice so that if, you know, one of your one of the provider that you were using or you're thinking of using has these practices in place where, you know, they're, they're going to, you know, just effectively decide, you know, how, how to deal with your traffic in order to, you know, optimize their profits. You can say like, okay, well, there's who, who else doesn't do that and have some choice in, in how you spend your money and how you, um, who you buy service from. So, you know, there's, there's two ways there to, to kind of get at that underlying goal. Why is net neutrality so important? Why shouldn't certain packets be cheaper than others to send? On? I think my understanding of net neutrality is that, Net neutrality would mean that you can't discriminate between one packet and another. You can't say under any conditions that this is Netflix traffic, therefore I'm going to charge you more than if this is Comcast Entertainment Network traffic. Why is that important that certain packets shouldn't be cheaper than others to send on the internet? Yeah, well, so if you kind of apply to like, you know, how the, the phone system that that is kind of covered under Title II, um, you know, and you're buying your, your phone service from Comcast and, uh, you know, they've decided now to throttle your, your phone calls to like, say, DirecTV to push to push their cable network service. So, you know, if you want to call DirecTV and try to get service now, you're, you know, you have a, you know, like a wait time to, to be able to talk to them. So kind of similarly with, you know, with with data packages, like, if you have, you know, you're using Netflix and, and, you know, one of the, you know, your internet provider has a competing TV service, like something like, you know, like Netflix is going to use like a decent amount of bandwidth. So they decide, you know, okay, hey, we, we have like this, you know, fast lane for our TV. And then, you know, we have, you know, this other lane for Netflix and other competing video providers. And, you know, it's going to run a lot slower. So, you know, to the extent that, you know, you can, you know, you can sort of drive profit in, in sort of like what doesn't, you know, certainly doesn't feel to a consumer like a very fair way. You know, that that's really where I, I think the most important piece of, of having that, um, you know, a, a net neutral traffic policy. If there were multiple ISPs, would you be so in favor of net neutrality as an absolute policy? 
I don't think like, you know, necessarily, you know, regulation in a lot of cases, especially when you're trying to like encourage businesses to, to get started is, is, you know, it's, it's certainly not like the best tool in every case. So to the extent that, you know, a competitive market would create situations where you, you don't have to rely on, on the regulation, you know, whether or not that, that regulation still has the, you know, the cost benefit to, to make it worthwhile, a competitive environment will help you achieve to a large extent those same ends. Yeah, because I can imagine a world where if I can pick and choose between my different ISPs, I would want the ISPs to be able to say, this ISP is going to be cheaper for you if you are not using Netflix, because I'm not a huge Netflix user, so I don't have all this high bandwidth video traffic, and therefore I would love to get a a lower cost uh, network connection. Yeah, and in certain cases too, like they used to have with like you know dial-up providers, you could have like ad-supported internet. So yeah, having if you have like a you know if you had like the same sort of you know breadth of options you have with like dial-up, where you just have like you know effectively you know, dial-up almost functions like a, you know an open access network where you can just prov- you can just pick from any provider going over the phone system. So yeah, if you if you have access to all those like that same number of providers and like someone's offering a plan that you you'd rather go with, then that's great and that works for you and and you know no one else has to you know has to like, you know, kind of follow suit with that decision. Everyone gets to make their own. When you look at that price of Comcast per month, so average consumer looks at the price, they see $60 a month, $80 a month, $180 a month. If Comcast has found some naive person to hook, I'm sure there are plenty of people who are paying some absurd rate for internet that they're not using because of this dire situation. How cheap should it be? Like, if you could, let's say you were in charge of, you know, just making things break even, you just had to make a break even ISP, how cheap could you make it? Yeah. So, you know, it's the big thing is like you have, you know, you're putting out kind of capital, you know, you're, you're kind of expending like, you know, doing capital expenditure to, in order to, to make money back, to pay it back. So it kind of fits into like, you know, like, well, yeah, how quickly should, should my, like, if I go and, you know, put, you know, 20, 50 grand into something, like how quickly should I get that paid back? You know, what's, you know, my risk that I don't get it paid back? How much should I be, you know, compensated for that risk? So if you had to take out, you know, take out those factors, if, if everything's sort of free, internet service itself, like the actual, like the moving of the bits is is pretty cheap. So, you know, if you're, you're looking at like, you know, you can get like a, like a, a gigabit pipe from like, you know, one of these like kind of providers that's sort of dedicated for like $2,000 a month and you can fit, you know, potentially like a lot, like hundreds of customers on that. Then you know the the actual numbers that it costs per like your your cost to hit each subscriber is is really really low. It's like something in like you know the like dollars range. But it's kind of all these other things of like you know dealing in the like you know the physical world and you know the risks of the business is is where you have to sort of like you know build in extra costs to be able to you know make sure you don't you don't lose your investment. All right, let's start to move towards Necto and the business that you're building. To reiterate. Historically, it's been quite hard to set up an ISP. Why has it gotten easier? Why has it gotten cheaper? So the the technology is the is the big thing that's improved um, on the mainly on the what we've seen and that's that's gotten us really excited about it is on the on the fixed wireless side. Um, there's been you know there's been leaps and across across the whole slew of like networking technology. Like you have like um, you know software defined networking now like the commoditization of a lot of this switching gear, um, you know, Cisco's sort of like 
decoupled their um, uh, their operating system off the further switches from their hardware. Um, you just sort of see now that just like, you know, a lot of these, just these efficiencies from, you know, a kind of mature set of, you know, uh, networking appliances has driven a lot of cost decrease. On the wireless side, you're just seeing these like huge leaps and bounds. Like there's a company sickly released like this, a 10 gigabit uh, set of like point to point radios to basically, you know, between two points, you can be putting like up to 10 gigabits of traffic across them. And the reliability of these things has gotten so much better. The you know, the usability, the, the, yeah, really the, the cost has been the big thing. It's like a cost to cost to reliability slash speed ratio has, has improved dramatically, especially over just the last few years. If I want to set up an ISP today, what does that take? What are my requirements? Yeah. So you sort of need, well, you need like a customer base and an area that you want to serve. So, you know, what we do is we take out the, the technical side. So it's like what your requirements for you are just being like having the access to having access to customers and infrastructure. So infrastructure for us means that you just need, you know, what I was talking about earlier with the tower sites. So you basically need areas to, to broadcast your internet to these individual homes. So what we look for are, are people that can that can talk to and acquire customers, you know, sell to customers, provide a good customer service experience and provide the, uh, the, what do we call like the vertical assets, like the things that are kind of tall that you can strap these antennas to, to be able to, to serve your customers. Um, and from there, you know, what you do is you, you sort of buy a, um, a bulk bandwidth, bulk bandwidth subscription effectively from like an enterprise data carrier and, then really that's, you know, that's pretty much it. You just need to be able to, you know, do the, you know, the handiwork of getting these, these uh, antennas installed and to be able to, you know, talk to the customers. And there's not like a, you know, it's, it's mainly around having the market and the, like the hustle are really the, the qualifications and, and this, this benefit of, or a kind of a competitive advantage in getting either customers or um, these vertical assets. When you're setting up that ISP if I'm setting up my ISP in my apartment building or something like that, is there software I need? Is there is the software all open source? So yeah, the software and the software and the management is are the parts that we provide. So what we do is we kind of centralize that the networking engineering piece and the monitoring, and we create the software to be able to manage the network. Uh, so that's that's sort of the piece that we come in and provide um, so that you don't have to learn like how, you know, well, what we teach you a lot about how it works, but like you don't have to know, understand the the network engineering aspects of it. So we use software, software where we can and network engineering expertise where um, where we need to. So the product that you offer is an ISP starter kit. That's what Necto Lab offers so that if I run an apartment building, I can set up my own ISP. Maybe I have a neighborhood that happens to not have internet for some reason, or I just want to set up a competitive ISP, I can set that up. Uh, that's that's what Necto Lab does. You also have Necto, which is within your same company, which is your own ISP. And we'll break down these a little bit further, but because you mentioned this, this software aspect as being a competitive advantage, the fact that you wrote software for the hardware that exists. So you saw the opportunity in terms of the hardware, the lower costs, perhaps the demand for this. There's a lot of demand for this this kind of thing because I, people are really disenfranchised with the state of things in terms of ISPs. So when you started this, what was the state of the software? Did you look at it and like 
this is terrible software or it's just like all closed source or uh, like and are the devices that you need to interface with are they are they hackable enough to be able to run your own software on it like tell me about being able to have software dominion over this range of hardware devices that you do not own the supply chain for yeah, so good good news. Yeah, the devices are are like hackable enough for us to be able to like bring some automation uh, to them. And as far as like the the current the state when we started, it's there's so a lot of the ISPs like it's it's pretty common for these ISPs to sort of do their you know like a roll your own software for it. Uh, now there's like some software packages that that help with that, but. Um, a lot of like the state of like, if you're looking for surely for like open source software, it's a lot of it's like, you know, pretty old and a lot of it's geared towards the use case of more of like a, like enterprise, like a larger enterprise monitoring, um, their network or, you know, like a, a, uh, like a hosting company and, and kind of companies like that, that have that kind of act, you know, in some ways like an ISP that they need to like monitor a large amount of devices across, you know, a wide network across multiple sites, possibly, yeah, the uh, the state of the software wasn't wasn't certainly uh, too great when we started. Um, so yeah, we've had to we had to build uh, build some stuff to like be able to be able to yeah kind of can configure these devices remotely. But um, yeah, all in all, it's just it's it's not a huge market like providing you know like ISPs because they're not a you know like the number of ISPs are kind of been shrinking. So you know, it's not a lot of like you know open source software for like startup ISPs. So that's kind of the stuff that we build is, is the, the pieces that they need in order to, to manage and, and, you know, create these networks. This ISP starter kit, it consists of some hardware and some software. What is in the ISP starter kit? If I have an apartment building, I decide I want to start my own ISP in it. What do I get from your kit? Yeah, yeah. So the, the starter kit's kind of amorphous. So it's it, it wraps in a few things. So it's like you need yeah. There's some there's the hardware to actually be able to get it to get it up and running. There's the software to manage it, but but really there's the pieces of like okay, you know where can I put these antennas? Like you know what customers can I reach? Who sh- can I buy these the upstream connections from? So a lot of it's too is us us helping the, the operators get started with that. So we'll go out and get bids for them for their kind of their bulk bandwidth buy. We'll evaluate tower uh, potential tower sites with them and say like, okay, yeah, you can reach you know this many customers from this way. You know, you can you know this is this is in your way here, and, and sort of build out like a network map for them, help them with the distribution side, and you know say like, okay, here are some of the ways that we use to market to our customers that work. You know, you can use these or you can use your own. Help you with like the branding and setting the um, and setting prices, and then sort of bringing in the the expertise that that you know. We We've had to go out and find and uh, from people on how to you know how to run ISPs how like what's the best way to have them set up you know what are what are issues you're going to run at run into doing different things so it's in a large sense it's like you know we, we help them we help them start it's like you know it's not like we just sort of ship them a box and, and be done with it we you know we want to get to that to a point where it's like more you know self service but we you know we we help them we help them start completely that's really what you know that's that's to us what the starter kit is it's not just like a not just like a box of equipment and, and like you know some software. So somebody buys it, and then they're setting it up in their apartment. Do you come out and help them set it up, or do they just kind of like talk to you over the phone while they set it up? How does that work? Yeah, for the first few, I'm going to go out there and uh, set it up with them, me and uh, some other people from from the team, and we'll we'll get it we'll get it all set up from them. And you know, in a lot of these sense cases too, like you know, 
they're going to run into different circumstances. And, you know, we're, we're, our thing is to like be able to learn from all these operators, just the same way that we can teach them. Like they're going to run into different situations and we're going to sort of wrap that together and, you know, create like a, create a community around how to, to run these ISPs and how we can all like learn from each other and, and run into the, you know, these problems together. You know what I think would be cool for the, if you wanted to help with the remote installation process, there was a, a company that came on the show a while ago called Scope AR. And what they do is it's like a an AR headset where I think the widest use case is people who are setting up factories or setting up assembly lines. And then there'll be some person that has expertise that is not co-located with the person who is setting up the assembly line. So it'd be cool if you had like five AR devices and every time somebody had it uh, got an ISP starter kit you you could also send them a, a, you know one of these AR headsets and then help them set it up over the augmented reality system so you could see things from their vantage point help them set up whatever kind of hardware they need and then maybe they could send back the AR device anyway I don't mean to backseat drive but uh just something that came to mind no, yeah, that'd be really cool. I could see that in our office, uh, a bunch of us walking around with AR headsets on, you know, tink- tinkering with uh, <laughs> networking equipment. That could be pretty cool. Well, you don't actually need the AR headset on your side. You just need the customer who is setting it up has the headset, and you can just be looking at your laptop and seeing things from their vantage point, and you can, like, put an arrow on the screen and be like, hey, you should, like, put that there from their vantage point. Okay, I get that's way better than uh, yeah. I would be worried that we'd be running into each other, but yeah, that sounds like that would be a really cool thing to try out. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So they get this thing in the mail, and then what do they do? Like, what do they what do they have to set up? Like, how how much stuff is involved? Are they hanging wires from the ceiling? Are they having to nail things in? Yeah. So yeah, when you uh, when you get them set up, so they're, they're setting up the um, the tower sites. So what we do is we'll we'll come out for the first ones and and kind of teach them how to how to do that, how to get them how to get them set up. And same thing at the at the customer um, the customer locations. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's definitely like uh, you know like you know, it's like physical installations, sort of like similar to what you know how Comcast works and where you would be like going out to the individual homes. You put antennas on their on their roof and um, yeah, you run a cable into there into the uh, the home and uh, connect them to, uh, you know, connect a Wi-Fi router to there. So, yeah, there's a, there's definitely yeah, there's a, definitely like a, you know, kind of like light construction aspect to it. Yeah, that's that's how we get sort of the, the infrastructure piece stood up. OK, the infrastructure piece getting stood up and then how does the Internet get delivered? So let's just go through So like. I'm a customer. I've set it up in my apartment building that I own. Give me the end-to-end where the internet gets delivered to the end customer through that ISP that I've set up in my apartment building. So the first thing is we we uh, get uh, the connection, the the bulk bandwidth connection. So basically, like the same way that your customers are buying internet from you, you're buying internet from somebody. So that company will pull fiber in into one of your tower sites, effectively one of your like your central tower site. And so we get that connected into our stack, the the equipment that we kind of ship out to them in a box. And then out from that stack, we start running into like we run up to the you know the top of the tower and start broadcasting internet out. So what we do is then, so we have a like wireless, you know, uh, receiving equipment on the top of the tower, and then that connects them to either other towers or directly to customer homes from there. 
So, and then from, from that, from that tower site, the customer home has a connection to connection to those tower sites via that antenna. And then sort of that link there, that pathway from our bulk bandwidth provider up to the, into our stack, up to the distribution antennas across to a customer antenna into their home, into their Wi-Fi router. That's the link right there. How big can these ISPs be? How big can my apartment building be or can the apartment building deliver to the apartment building and the entire neighborhood that it's around? Is there any limitation to how big they can build their ISP? No, so it's like it's it's you just have to size whatever the the bulk bandwidth that you're buying from. You just it, you just have to make sure that you have enough basically for the number of customers you're serving. So usually the size of pipes that we're buying initially are enough to serve several hundred customers. As you get more, you can you basically you can buy more or buy more at different at different tower sites and sort of inject more bandwidth into your network that way. So that's how you yeah you can just and you just scale up from there. That's just kind of yeah. There's there's not really a uh, physical limit outside of that. There's you know there's how far the antennas will travel, kind of realistically how large of a service area you want to, to try and cover. But yeah, there's other than that, there's not a there's not like a, a technical limitation on how big they can be. You said you've set up. An ISP. You're actually no, you didn't say that. I read that you set up Necto, and then Necto Lab again is starting your own ISP. Was Necto the genesis for Necto Lab, where you started to try to run your own ISP, and then you found out, oh, this would actually make more sense as if we just had a kit. What was the genesis for having these two businesses, the ISP and the build your own ISP business? The idea from the beginning was how do we enable other people to do this? Um, and we call it, we just call the whole thing Necto. They're kind of on they're like separated domains for our SFISP versus our um, uh, the operator uh, network. But yeah, the, uh, the the idea from the beginning was you know how how do we help other people do this? Because you know the original thing as a co-founder was looking at like okay like why does why in San Francisco is with the most competitive you know internet certainly in the area. Have uh, you know? Is he having such trouble getting like good, you know, good customer service and good quality internet? I uh, started looking into like, okay, how do we, how do we, like, is it possible to start an ISP? It turns out it is. Um, and the thing is, is just like going through, like looking at at how to do it. It's it's certainly possible. It's very lightly regulated, but the the technical uh, bur- the technical knowledge gap is is just the the biggest issue preventing it that the you know the wireless gear all these things have gotten so much better but there's not we're not seeing like you know how we saw with you know when AWS has made it so much easier to stand up web servers we're not seeing like a cambrian explosion of of ISPs and it turns out it's because all this knowledge is just sort of like you know hidden away so thankfully being in like San Francisco you can like there's a lot of people out here with a lot of experience on you know like network engineering experiences for ISPs so it turns out yeah that there's it's it's possible to start them but just most people don't just because of that that skill gap so yeah that was the that was kind of the genesis and the you know it, it was it was always from the beginning like all right we need to figure out a way to you know we need to run our own if we want to like help other people do their own so you know it, we wanted to run into you know all the problems first we want to like you know like really know what it's like to run an ISP before we're trying to help other people run their own what's the type of customer that ends up buying an ISP starter kit. Yeah, interesting. So the people that we've been talking to so far, we see a lot of uh, people that have like own either property, multiple properties, kind of rental properties, and especially in areas that they don't have very good internet service now. 
So uh, those that's been sort of the uh, that's been one big one. And the other one is just people that have experience in uh, providing, you know, like the kind of consumer, like the, you know, the end end support, like they're kind of, you know, tech savvy and they have business experience and, you know, kind of getting into the infrastructure piece interests them. So they have, you know, the customer acquisition skills, customer support and, you know, retention skills. And it's just the, yeah, it's just the, the network engineering piece that they need help with in order to be able to start an ISP. The apartment buildings that already have access to an ISP, like a Comcast or a CenturyLink or something, are you seeing any of these buildings that say, hey, actually, if we set up our own ISP, that's an additional revenue stream as opposed to feeding customers to Comcast? So are there apartment buildings that set up their own ISP and then it starts to become a good revenue stream for them as opposed to just feeding customers to Comcast or CenturyLink or whoever is the rival ISP in the hood? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's definitely something that we, that we want to enable. And, you know, they have the access to the customers there um, and they can provide better service and they already have a, you know, a billing relationship, especially with the customers. So, yeah, that's uh, that would be that would be an ideal customer for us, for sure. And, and one that we're targeting. You wrote about the fact that people have an impression that there is some legal barrier or regulation against setting up an ISP, and there actually is not, right? There's not really much limitation to who can set up an ISP. Yeah, it's actually, it's really surprising. Like, I, I thought the first thing was like, okay, we have to go to the federal government and get an ISP license or something like that. Like, there, there's no ISP license. <laughs> Anybody can sell it. There's like, there's one that's called a Form 477 by the FCC that you have to fill out like twice a year. It's not super involved. And yeah, especially, yeah, the net neutrality in that Title II regulation was, was sort of like the first really substantial kind of set of regulation that you need but yeah there's there's no there's no like kind of i figured that there was like some sort of regulatory body just because there were so few of them but uh yeah it turns out that's not the case if i was a privacy advocate of the strongest flavor and i'm worried about my isp snooping on me is that another use case that you could potentially address yeah, so I mean, what we do is we we since we have kind of control of that that software stack and the routing stack and that kind of thing, we we can you know we can make sure we just we're just not building software that would enable the the sorts of you know uh, interception and and you know packet inspection that that people would be concerned about if if they were doing that. You know, honestly, I think always the you know the best the best thing is you know if you you know like encryption using you know HTTPS. That's there, there's. There's still like you're, you're you're transiting traffic across other people's networks. It's like it's not just necessarily your ISP. Like there's other people in between you and those kind of end computers, like I was talking about. So, you know, you you really want to look for technical solutions there where possible. Like it's sort of less and less identifiable as you go further out to an extent. But like, yeah, it's you know you're you're not just crossing your ISP's network. You're you're crossing a lot of other people's network as well. And and you know you you don't there's not like a lot of transparency into exactly whose network you are crossing. So it, it technical solutions. You know, implemented by the you know by the the clients and the servers i think are the best solution there are you only serving people in san francisco or can you serve somebody in montana or canada or south america yeah so we uh we our our isp the one that we're running ourselves is is just in san francisco but uh yeah we're expanding out from that um uh, the operators that we have now are uh, we have one in south dakota and we're looking to bring on some more in california right now so uh, that's, uh, yeah, yeah, we're definitely not trying to keep it just in San Francisco. So in South Dakota, 
the person would have to find one of these towers to set up with a set with a uh, distribution device, right? One of these, like, is it a, is it like a dish? Uh, kind of. So they're um, uh, like what we use mainly for the well, the South Dakota one in particular. He's serving um, like several commercial buildings together. So in that case, that he doesn't have to go directly to customers like residential homes yet. But between those, yeah, it, it sort of does look like a satellite dish. Those links are at um, it's like millimeter wave, like sixty gigahertz links between them. But yeah, they look sort of like a like an enclosed satellite dish, and they're about I think it's about like. It's like 35 centimeters wide or so, um, the ones that we're, we're using there. So yeah, they, they, yeah, they look like satellite dishes, but the, they, they're capable of running like, it's like multiple gigabits um, across them. So it's like, it's a, it's a bit of a different ballgame from like a direct TV. Did you have to fly out to South Dakota to, to help this guy or was he able to do it himself? Uh, that's coming up and he's getting the fiber drop in now. So he's, uh, so we'll probably be out there in, uh, in a few weeks. Cool. So as you get, more and more customers what are the economies of scale as a business and what does the business structure look like more generally yeah so the things that we get from like adding more operators is obviously you know more learning across like a wider network of of people running internet service providers like there's you know, there's not just internet. Like if you, if you have like a, you know, an ongoing recurring relationship with a, with a customer, there's a lot, there's a lot of other things you can do. Like there's, you know, there's like IOT devices. We think there's a lot of ways that a lot of different, you know, revenue models that you can layer on top of internet and that there's a lot of, you know, learning you get from offering internet and from having different types of plans and, and doing different, you know, different things across the network. And, you know, also larger, like, you know, we have to buy bulk internet too. So the more people we have buying bulk internet, the better, you know, better deals we get there. Same with the equipment. But uh, yeah, really getting that network of, of operators that also have, you know, unused bandwidth. So we end up with like, you know, you kind of end up with like a pretty wide kind of like edge network effectively at a bunch of different uh, operator locations. So there's a lot of like cool things that that enables. So we're, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to the, the kind of things that we can do as the network grows. Okay. I'm really excited about this business. I think it's really cool. I'm a fan of what you're doing. I have a few questions about the future that don't really have anything to do with Necto. And I'm hoping you can give me some speculation. Excellent. All right. <laughs> so... I've heard that self-driving cars could potentially increase the bandwidth requirements far beyond what we have in the United States. Is that true? As far as what they would use, I mean, I guess if they were had like a learning model or something, it wouldn't it would seem to me that like the self-driving cars would need to communicate with each other more than they would need to communicate with like some central base. Maybe that's naive, but yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't there's I guess it's not like, yeah, I mean, if you're trying to ship that many like map data, I don't, it wouldn't seem like there would be a lot of, I, I, I couldn't think of a, a, like a huge case for bandwidth back to a central server from a uh, self-driving car. So I, you know, my gut feel would be that it wouldn't, it wouldn't outweigh like, you know, the adoption of like Netflix streaming across like, you know, the, the United States. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be worried about there. Maybe that's naive, but I wouldn't be worried about it. Let's say it did. Let's say they had... I don't know if this is the case, but let's say self-driving cars are constantly capturing 360 video around them, and they're trying to stream that 360 video back to a data center for as close to real-time training and redeployment of trained models due to that 360 video detecting something interesting. 
if there was a massive bandwidth increase requirement because of video because of cars needing 360 video how would that change the game of internet service providers i think that would that would really help like sort of a distributed model so if you can if you can do that assuming you can do that processing distributed that you could have like basically you know your your server farm like your aws instead of being like all in one data center was spread out across a bunch of different operators data centers that have a bunch of different basically excess like rack space and bandwidth my thinking was is that you could you could create like a distributed network there to do that sort of that that edge processing and do whatever you needed to do with that data and then sort of like be kind of like uploading it for like, I guess, storage later if you wanted to, to like archive it somewhere else, but that you would be able to, whatever that real-time component is, you could have like a kind of an edge server that would be able to do that real-time processing right away. Now, I wonder if you had this set of routers that are connected to Necto, where you have Dominion over the software stack, I wonder if you could do something interesting in terms of quote-unquote edge computing because if you see that they're maybe not using some amount of bandwidth uh, from your vantage point with your monitoring ability maybe you could uh, you know you could make it you could say hey if you want to farm out your spare bandwidth to other things maybe you could have some kind of a market market within that anyway i'm sure you've you've thought of this this kind of thing just that's i think that's probably one of the economies of scale uh aspects that may come down the pike later on yeah like having like because that's like you know if you think of like a cdn or like an edge network is like that's like different data centers that are really close but we have the potential to be like a like an ultra localized edge network or cdn like if we have like you know it's it's like you don't even have to go out to the outside internet to get a to get a cache thing so if that's you know that's something that could really speed up you know access speeds to our customers or provide those kind of benefits you're talking about Mm. how long till we have some of these other mediums why so you hear about satellite internet being deployed to developing countries or of course the balloon thing how long till we have those kinds of developing internet technologies um, being served to production traffic yeah so the the kind of interesting ones we see are um so there's a couple a couple companies seen um astronus doing like smaller uh i think believe geostationary uh satellites and uh the other one is like spacex's um uh they're doing like that one web constellation so the with the one web they you you kind of get over the 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 latency issue of like you know going to geostationary orbit so uh, that one is that one's like both of them are pretty interesting and things we keep our eye on. Uh, estimates I've I've heard are like years basically, but um, you know I don't have like necessarily an in to to know of whether that's true. But we we definitely keep an eye on like the FCC filings um, and uh, and see where it's looking like. But they're they're in testing right now, so my guess would be you know hopefully single digit number of years, hopefully sooner because that that opens up a huge amount of possibility for us to buy backhaul in, in areas that we wouldn't be able to provide, like we wouldn't be able to service because we wouldn't be able to buy bandwidth from anybody. So if we can buy bandwidth from them, that opens up huge markets to us. Facebook has some technology in this category that I think is cutting edge. They've got the, or I don't know how cutting it, cutting edge it is in, in terms of developments, but at least in terms of implementation, I think they've, they've done some innovative things like the drone that I think lasers down internet to people. And then they also have this thing that they deployed in San Jose. I don't know if you've seen that, but 
it's like kind of local internet thing, but like you put it on street poles and the street poles are communicating bandwidth with each other or something like that. Uh, my sense is that Facebook is doing some interesting things. Have you, have you seen anything specifically out of Facebook that caught your eye? Uh, yes, yeah, it's like Facebook and Google both like, and yeah, I have some, have, you know, these connectivity, you know, well, obviously that's, that's like kind of one of their big barriers to growth now is just getting people online. So I've seen a lot that, that seemed like, you know, they seem like they could work, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, a little curious about what the, you know, the business model will be behind it, about whether they're going to provide like full blown internet and be like an internet service provider, or if it's going to be kind of like, you know, you get to use Facebook um, and like Facebook kind of related properties. So yeah, I think they, they sounds like they're experimenting with the technology on, on both. Um, I haven't seen, I don't think anything that would be, yeah, anything that would be something that would be, you know, super exciting necessarily to me, but, uh, I, I think it's cool stuff and I'm glad that they're working on it for sure. They definitely have some, uh, especially Facebook has some like, uh, interesting things on like the, I think they have some like open source networking stuff that they're doing. So there's gotta be some, you know, there's, there's definitely some cool work going on in there. I know this is very far out, outside of your um, what you came on here to discuss, but when Facebook was doing the zero rating internet, uh, f- face uh, free basics internet dot org thing, you know there were people who who felt that that was you know going against net neutrality in a way that made them uncomfortable. How did you feel? How do you feel about the zero rating services as as an opportunity to provide lower bandwidth uh, internet communications to people? Yeah, I mean, the zero rating is really just sort of, you know, throttling by a different name, like, you know, lowering lowering the cost on something versus raising the cost on something is, you know, is, is you know, lowering cost on one thing versus raising the cost on something else is kind of the same thing. You end up with, it's the differential is, is really what, what makes the difference. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, pitching it as a zero rating and then, you know, potentially making things that aren't zero rated much more expensive you end up getting the same thing. I think it's probably sounds like a bit of a better marketing pitch, but you end up with the same thing where it's like certain traffic is, you know, treated preferentially to other traffic. And, uh, you know, that's, yeah. I hear you. Okay. Well, Adam, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. I am fascinated with the company you're building and I wish you and your co-founder, and I think you have one employee at this point. Is that right? We have Two, three, two, three now. So I guess, yeah, it might be up to, there's five of us now. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, congratulations. I'm, I'm excited to see where you, where you take Necto. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. Wow.